Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey man. How's it going? How are you doing? I'm good, you? Well, it's uh, it's it's an interesting couple of weeks. I mean, the last time the last time we did a recording, uh, I mean, we've had like a recording, we had like a recording out every week, right? But the actual recording was done one day before the Ukraine invasion. Yeah. So, so uh, like the world, it seems like the world changed a lot from, you know, from our last recording. Yeah. And since then, you've been uh, writing frantically in our database about great power politics. So why don't you tell me about that? So, I mean, um, I, I, I did, I did talk a lot about this even online like uh, publicly not only in the in the in our internal knowledge base um but the idea is that you know like i i feel that we as a generation uh we witnessed something that the world has not really witnessed before which is a, a superpower basically a, a a monopolar world where there's only one superpower uh and then you know even before that even having a bipolar world, I think, like if you talk about the entire globe basically being bipolar, I think that is also a unique uh, situation, globally speaking, like uh, across human history that did not happen before. Uh, so I, th- I think that we have lived through a period in which was, it was actually exceptional, where there was only one superpower or there was only two superpowers. And there was even the concept of a superpower, you know, people often confuse great power with superpower, but superpower basically means that it can project power every, anywhere in the world uh, within, you know, within a very reasonably very sh- short short amount of time. Uh, normally, it's also talking about, you know, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a country has, you know, uh, nuclear weapons, etc. So we are used to a world which is actually exceptional. And now the world seems to be moving on to a multipolar world. A world of great powers rather than a world of superpowers or you know one or two superpowers um, and so for us this might be a little disorienting because like you know this is not the world we're used to but actually this is most of history most of human history it was basically like different powers of more or less you know some of them are, are, are bigger than the others but they have to basically play this game where they check each other and they balance off each other because uh you know that's the that's how the game is played uh, so I was thinking like, you know, like I've, I've seen many threads on Twitter, many, uh, you know, many people talking about how, you know, if you want to understand what the world will look like in like 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years, look how the world was before World War One, And, you know, look how the world was in like, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, or for most of like, you know, most of most of history before that, and how the politics was really about, you know, it was it was Machiavellian, it was cynical. Uh, it was really about, you know, like, let's, let's back these people, let's back that country, not because we like them, but because we want to check that other country, etc. Or let's declare war just because we want to, we want to make sure that this country doesn't get, to, this, this state doesn't get too powerful, etc. Um, and I was thinking the other day that, you know what, I understand that the world is going through a, to a similar, we're going through similar structural stresses that before, that, you know, we are going to go to a multipolar world. Uh, but at the same time, I think our social world, our social environment has has progressed to the point where uh, this is no longer tenable. I think that humanity basically has, I don't want to say we evolved, like we are still we, I mean, it's still the same human ego, it's the human ego, but our interconnectedness has has increased a lot. Uh, the definition of humanity even has has increased a lot, something we spoke about before. Uh, 
So I get the feeling that, you know what? Uh, this actually means more instability, not less. Why? Because we don't have a model. We don't know how to how to manage such a world. And, uh, you know, maybe more minds, more, more people should be thinking about it. Thinking about, you mean, how diplomacy works in, in a multipolar world? How global I mean, security how, how and... geopolitics, how politics really must work. I mean, what kind of model should it should it be? How can we? So, I mean, uh, we expressed this before, really, between in conversations between me and you. Like, how do we defend human rights and you know and human values in a world which is no longer you know uh, which is no longer dominated by just one or two big forces, uh, but where there are multiple poles, multiple you know multiple uh, you know powerful nations or co coalitions of nations. We're not there yet, of course, like we're still at the tail end of the previous world order. It is transitioning, it transitions slowly, but it does transition. So the thing is, the old model of multipolarity doesn't work because that coincided with a time of great power distance between the governed and the rulers. And, uh, you know, it was a cynical time. It was a time of uh, even more extreme real politic than we're used to seeing. And human rights didn't even exist as a particularly powerful concept. Um, so how does... Um, a multipolar world combined with that. Uh, on your point about uh, you know real politique, etc., I think that was for most of history that was uh, the case. That was standard. That was normal uh, because of you know you know great power politics. Check, you know checking it. You know the, like the only thing the only thing that could check a power is another power because there was no there was, there was no real world order. Yeah, but it's a very modern phenomenon that um, citizens expect moral consistency of their governments and even exert uh, pressure in order to ensure it or to demand it. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, this is another factor, which is that we have a more, uh, you know, more politically aware citizenry. We have a citizenry who feel that, and you know, they do and they have the the right to comment on public affairs. I mean, previously, when we didn't have democracies, uh, most people were, you know, were peasants, uh, you know, talking, you know, like middle of the, you know, 1800s, 1700s. A lot of people were peasants and they couldn't really, they didn't really have any any say in public matters. Uh, it was really the ruling elites who, and the elite was very was 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 rather small. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is another thing which is different. You know, there's more, there's a bigger global middle class, and they feel in, entitled to actually have a say. But also, though, there's this whole point about the expansion and the definition of humanity, because for most of human history, we only interacted like you know people who we recognized as as human as we are are people who we interacted with. Uh, and now the people we interact with is basically every human being on the globe because of, you know, communications, technology, social media, etc. And so it's no longer the case that we can say that, hey, what was happening there in Ukraine or what's happening in, I don't know, Mexico or Brazil, etc. Uh, has no bearing at whatsoever. Uh, I mean, there is a concept of kind of an international community. I think that will, that's, that's here to stay. Yeah, but um, the last decade has kind of shown where these two ideas contradict a little because uh, during the unipolar world, um, for better or worse, you had uh, powers or a superpower which could intervene wherever it wanted to intervene. Over the last decade, we've seen uh, massive catastrophes in Yemen and Syria where um, the world basically sits idly by and watches because the side committing the atrocities has you know, the, sh the shelter of um, a great power. And that's going to become a lot more common if there's a small conflict in which one of the one of the one of the perpetrators is under the umbrella of a great power, the other powers will basically sit and watch because they don't want to start World War Three. 
Yeah, and I think that we kind of so so there are people who will tell it would tell you, for example, that hey, this was always the case. Like uh, everything that you're predicting is going to happen has always been the case. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that was the case. It happened, but it wasn't the the it wasn't the norm. Uh, at least the way that we talked about it is like, oh, we had the right. Also, we didn't have the tools of scale to commit such rapid suffering on such a scale. That's absolutely true. This is actually another point which is which is important to note. War, modern war, is far more devastating in the 21st century than in the 19th century. The 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 disruption to human life in case of a full scale war is so much more now than 200 years ago, which is another reason why we can't really go to that kind of world. Uh, but then you you made a point too about you know, uh, in a way we have the right to we kind of have the right to to actually be angry about these things before they were the norm. So like okay they happened, and uh, it didn't it didn't turn any heads. But now we kind of have the we have the right at least to to say that hey this shouldn't happen. Hmm. So I want to talk about um, this video you sent me about Egypt and Egypt's uh, water security basically and the mega the mega projects they're doing. Um, to try and guarantee that in the future. Yeah, so that's that's the that, that's 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 the video by Caspian Reports. Actually, shout out to that channel because you know I, I really enjoy their videos. Yeah, so I got kind of depressed after this video because um, um, he's basically talking about the country's water security, the fact that it's uh, the Nile Delta, which is where almost all of the population is, is the size of Belgium but with 110 million people, and it's going to double over the next few decades. Um, incredibly water stressed. Um, there's a new Delta project where they went, want to try and green a massive amount of land. There's a mega project called the Toshka project where they want to build a big canal in Upper Egypt um, and connect that to a, a big lake. And he's kind of going through the reasons why um, there's another project with 20 million greenhouses. Don't know how that's going, but probably not very well. Um, you know how these mega projects tend to be corruption magnets and Egypt in particular can't really do much right now. Yeah. Um, but I was watching this and thinking yeah. that Egypt's entire future right now, um, like we always talk about it with an eye on the past and we talk about how Egypt has been the cultural and political center of the MENA for centuries. Um, Egypt's entire future depends on whether it can achieve um, water security. Um, then like the level beyond that is food security. Like we saw in the last week that... Egypt, like what, 80% of their wheat comes from uh, Ukraine and Russia? Um, I think just, 80%, yeah. yeah uh, 80% comes from either Ukraine or Russia. It's just staggering that a country that was once the breadbasket of Africa is now so food dependent. It can't grow its own food because it doesn't have the water. Yep. So it needs to achieve water security and then achieve food security just to survive as a nation. Um, and its ability to achieve water security seems to be entirely dependent on the great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and what happens with that project. Because um, Ethiopia wants to dam the Nile and change the... I mean, it's also, it also depends upon... I mean, uh, someone actually asked, uh, because I tweeted about this before, and someone kind of asked, uh, wait, didn't didn't they... Were, were, wasn't Egypt like the breadbasket of the Roman Empire? And I'm like, yeah. But then at that time, the population of Egypt was 6 million, and now it's 110 million. And it's probably on track to being, I think, 190 million by, by like mid-century. Um, like it's it's still growing very fast. Uh, but then you know, like like you dropped a lot of information, so like we have to kind of unpack it a little bit. But uh, the the point about the you know, so so there is this thing about like like the size of Belgium, right? 
so I don't think like because if you look at Egypt, people think Egypt is you know you you look at it on the map, it looks really big and impressive, right? Uh, but actually, most of its population lives on two percent of its land area, which is you know the, the Nile Delta and the Nile River itself going all the way to the to the Aswan Dam, right? And there is some you know some uh, some communities in the Sinai Peninsula, etc. But you know mostly it's it's around the Nile. So basically, for many decades, they've industrialized by building on the prime agricultural land of the nation and left like the entire surroundings exactly. as empty desert. So you built all your homes on the farmland. So this is what I what I, what what like someone actually asked me. So like this is what I what I responded. I'm like, this is a land use problem because the prime agricultural land is is where people live, uh, and I'm no expert on this by any measure. But it seems that you don't want to live. You know, if this is the best place to grow crops, you want to grow crops there, and then you want to move urban centers somewhere else. But successive, so of course, keep in mind that Egypt was only independent. I mean, it was basically, uh, you know, it, it's modern Egypt, talking like the modern, modern constitutional order, basically just started in the 1950s. Uh, and even before that, I think it was like in the 1930s that the British left, right? Uh, so there was this whole question is like, okay, what could have been done about this? Because for most of most of human history, this was Egypt. Uh, it never really extended all the way into the desert, etc. It never really diversified. But then your, you know, the the video you're referring to be to, to is about mega projects. So just to add on and top of that, there's a whole thing about there's the whole problem of yeah. um, controlling the flow of the Nile, uh, going back many decades. That in order to make the land around the Nile more stable, um, they tried to get rid of the annual flooding or at least reduce its extent. When that annual flooding was exactly what gave the land its fertility. Yep. Yep, and that's basically why the Aswan Dam was built. It was the idea that we want to stabilize. But of course, that came at the price. The price, basically, that you know, the like, like you said, basically, this this flooding of the you know, uh, this flooding of the of of the Nile, which was basically how it operated for. I think the Nile is like thirty million years old. Like human beings are only two million years old, but you know, the Nile is older than human beings. Uh, but then it used to always flood, and then it used to break its uh, its banks, and then it used to deposit all of this very mineral rich soil. And then you know it would it would retract back, and then people would just go, and then and then it was basically this is this is how what what kept the fertility. Now I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Again, I'm not really a, an expert on this, but it seems that uh, there is something about Egypt and mega projects going all the way to the pyramids. You know, uh, like like the pyramids were basically like one of the most impressive mega projects in human history, but then eventually it was basically a tomb, right? Uh, and in a sense, if you are if you are like an investor in Egypt, uh, and you're a pharaoh, and you're like, you know, I'm I'm actually going to live forever, it probably was a really good investment because now the tourism industry is is one of the most important sectors in Egypt. Like, you know, if you are a pharaoh, like, you know, let let me build really really something really impressive because six thousand years from now, uh, this this country will like this land is going to be very relevant in the world because of the tourism industry around this thing that I just built. If they were thinking, let me build something for the long-term future of my nation, then it was absolutely genius. If they were, but I don't think they were. But, you know, uh, the, the, whole, the whole thing is, I think that this idea of mega projects... So I, I don't know if you, you're aware, but um, when Nasser came to power in the 1950s, um, the Aswan Dam was one of the main like projects saying that this is proof that we can do what colonialism told us we can't do. In fact, you will find a song. Um, I can't remember. It's called it's called the Sadd Al Ali, the Aswan Dam, basically the the, the high dam. Uh, 
it's by uh, Abdul Halim Hafiz. Uh, and it's really interesting to listen to the lyrics. I don't remember the lyrics ex- exactly, but it was there's it's, he's basically singing, and they're not even he's not even saying that hey the Aswan Dam is going to be great for Egypt. He's saying in your face colonialism, we did it. You said we can't build our country, we built it, right? So it's almost like there is this obsession with like like mega projects as 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 proof kind of that you know that that we can do it. And I feel like, you know, Sisi was born in that's Egypt because, you know, Sisi was born in the 1950s, right? And I'm like, the first thing he did when he took power is speak about mega projects. Let's build a second Suez Canal. Let's build another another capital. It's like this this mentality of, of you know, of, of mega projects. Now, in a sense, Egypt actually does need mega projects because of, because of everything that you mentioned. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, of course, like uh, geopolitically speaking, one of the best things that Egypt can do is basically diversify its, its urban centers, right? And uh, use use the land better and, you know, shift some of its population centers basically into areas which are currently not used. But just like you said, uh, mega projects are corruption corruption magnets. So there's the thing with um, the Toshka project, which is the canal they tried to build uh, in Upper Egypt to uh, Lake Nasser, I think, um, and basically build like a mega city around that and massive farmlands. And uh, Mubarak started this project, and after a, f- a few years, it basically completely failed to raise any of the foreign investment because it didn't make sense to foreign investors. And then it co- collapsed in uh, like corruption scandals um, because you know Egypt's an incredibly corrupt state, and this was the second factor that was making me kind of pessimistic about Egypt's future. So you have this whole water scarcity and like existential insecurity issue. And then you have who's in charge of um, dealing with this and making sure the country navigates um, this crisis period. It's uh, the army, which really you look at as a stage three cancer on the nation. It's metastasized into almost every sector. You know, expert estimates are that it controls between 40 and 60% of the economy, possibly even higher. Um, Like the military itself is allowed to run businesses uh, and profit, and that profit doesn't go back to the state. And the the military's budget is a black hole, which the government, when there was a civilian government, they had no oversight of the military budget. It's just a black hole. You don't know how much is in it and you can't touch it. so that itself says that the people in charge are like not likely to get you out of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about these, I mean, like, like when you talk about geopolitics versus politics, I was kind of was talking about this today. Geopolitics remains the same. I mean, the geopolitical uh, imperatives and challenges of Egypt are going to be the same, whether it is the CC regime or the regime before it or after it. But then politics is different because it's basically your interests. Like, you know, it's basically the regime is always a lot of regimes, especially in democratic in non-democratic countries. The most important thing for them is to stay in power. They don't care, basically, that, you know, they're actually screwing over the, the geopolitics of, you know, for, for generations to come. But I want to co- comment two things about what you said. The first is that I kind of like how they call Southern, Southern Egypt Upper Egypt. Because, you know, it flips over because we, we, we've been trained to think that North is up and South is down. But then for, for, you know, for Egyptians for a very long time, actually up means upstream. So it's south. So upper Egypt is southern Egypt, which is kind of like, I just appreciate that because, you know, because I'm a nerd when it comes to these things. The second is about the Toshka project. Actually, the main reason it failed, I believe, was geological. Uh, it simply was unworkable. So it wasn't just a matter of investment. It's also that it was based upon bad science. And that also goes back to, uh, to dictatorship because Mubarak was a dictator and he surrounded himself with yes men and he, they simply told him what he wanted to, 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 to be told 
And, you know, eventually it didn't work. And of course, you know, add, add, add on top of that corruption, etc. So that's reminiscent of um, uh, CC's uh, kind of flagship mega project, which was the second Suez Canal, um, a second canal in parallel with the Suez Canal for its entire length, which I can't remember how many billion it cost. Um, but like the biggest criticism of it was that it's just unnecessary. Like you don't need a second canal. There isn't the traffic for it. I mean, I mean and also that the, the nation could use the money better. Exactly. So that like I, I would have two criticisms. The first is that if you have this much money, you might as well use it for something else. Uh, but actually, from CC's point of view, the reason why he went for it is because. So uh, I mean, if if you look at if you look at uh, what do you say a map of the Suez Canal, you'll see that it actually allowed more traffic. Uh, it's basically allowed more traffic to flow through at the same time because it's kind of like made a section of it two way rather than one way. Uh, so it made sense for CC because he wanted hard currency. So he wanted, he, he, you know, the Suez Canal for him is basically how he gets hard currency because he was he was worried about, you know, about prospects for, over, you know, uh, instability, etc. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you had that much money, then, you know, is this the best thing to, to do with it? And then he he goes ahead and, and calls it, he brands it as the second Suez Canal. It wasn't a second Suez Canal. It's simply an expansion of the existing canal. But anyway, I mean... Uh, we're, we're, we're at our 20-minute uh, uh, limit. So I'm not done with the reasons I'm miserable about Egypt. We'll, we'll, we'll come back <laughs> to that in the next episode. I mean, I, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure that if, if, if I let you go, we'll be speaking for like 30 minutes because it's also, honestly, it's because we love Egypt and we, we, do, we, we do care about Egypt, but this is why we get angry. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.